Good day and welcome to Occupied, your fortnightly podcast for all things occupation and occupational therapy. Today I had the opportunity to steal the podcast from Brock Cook and he was on the other side of the baton. We discussed everything from Brock finding occupational therapy, there is a story involving a puppet, to his years of being an occupational therapy student and a graduate. Furthermore, we looked at the 11 years previous of how Brock has developed his professional identity and moved on into education. We end with Brock looking at his vision for occupational therapy practice and how we are here to change the world. When I was finishing high school, I, in my head, I was going to the Air Force. Like that was that was it. Uh, I didn't have a plan B. Um, um, that was what I'd worked, you know, for the whole of high school pretty much to do. Uh, I was going to do engineering, had it all planned out. Everything was mapped out, you know, as much as you can as a 16 year old or whatever I was at the time. Yeah. <laughs> uh, anyway, so that actually fell through, uh, which was kind of gut wrenching, but I decided that I would sort of, I guess, do the next best thing and just go to a regular university and, and study engineering. Uh, so I enrolled at JCU here in Townsville, started engineering. I uh, also went to, I, I was living on college, which for you guys would be like, uh, I don't know what you guys call dormitories or it's like on-campus accommodation. Yeah, like pools. Or, yeah, pools um, in England and dorms, yeah. 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 So yeah. I was living there, uh, discovered drinking and partying at the at that uh, ripe old age of 17 and also <laughs> also discovered that engineering had way too much maths in it for me. Uh, so kind of mm. did the first semester and went, yeah, this isn't my cup of tea. Yeah, so I took that uh, next semester off and just worked. Uh, what, before I left, though, I had a, a, a chance encounter with a friend of mine on college who turns out was studying OT. Uh, oh, yeah. He was at the time heavily intoxicated and playing with a sock puppet call that looked... He... <laughs> I still remember the sock puppet's name was Monkey Broccoli uh, because it looked like a monkey with a broccoli on its head, I assume. And <laughs> I was like, what the hell are you doing? sitting in your room in the dark playing with a sock puppet and playing guitar so <laughs> and that was my introduction <laughs> to occupational therapy apparently he'd made the sock puppet in one of his classes uh no so, way yeah that's awesome <laughs> so he sort of well he didn't really explain a whole lot that night anyway but i asked him the next day um once he'd sobered up a bit uh and it kind of sounded a bit interesting so I did a bit of research, looked into it. Turns out a, a family friend that I'd known for years uh, was an OT, so I had a chat with her just to find out what she did. She worked in a in a hospital at the time, uh, looking. I think she was in pediatrics, but she was on a hospital ward. Yeah. And it sounded interesting, and I went, "All right, sweet, sign me up." And yeah, the rest is history. Went into to OT after that. Still not really having a very good idea of what it was, but it sounded more interesting than engineering. 
And as far as I knew <laughs> at the time, it didn't have any math in it. So that was a, a win-win for me. So let me just get this straight. You chose occupational therapy because of his sock puppet. <laughs> Don't question my decision-making processes. <laughs> so look how, step back, look how good that turned weaving. out. Yeah. Step, step back, basket weaving. Here's the sock puppet. Yeah. I will... <laughs> I will say that I haven't made any decisions based on sock puppet recommendations since, though. So I don't know if that's good or bad, whether I should revive it. Uh, but I yes. think that, that may have been a one-off. But we'll know. You never know. <laughs> that is awesome. And so then you obviously signed up to occupational therapy. And what was that transition like for you? And that, you know, learning, you know, occupational therapy is very philosophical in what we do because we work with the things that people need to do every day and so we more rather than how I understand it rather than sit in a textbook and associate conditions and what we know about a condition we build a framework around what people understand how they see their condition and how they see their occupations in everyday life and therefore how did you find that you know that's first starting to understand what OT was? I don't think I had any really – I don't think I got my head around that at all until sort of well into the degree. Uh, I think yeah. the, the biggest change for me was going from an engineering lecture room where there was 120 dudes and three chicks to almost the complete opposite. And, <laughs> like, me growing up around, like, team sports, like, I'd just always been, you know, around my mates and around guys and now just – it was really the first time I think I'd ever been in a room that was majority females and me going, I have, what am I doing? Yeah. Uh, am I even meant to be here kind of thing? Like, have I just signed up to something that only women do or like what's going on? And I think the, the course, when I first started it too, the first, first year course from what I remember, which was quite vague as I had not let go of my uh, partying and... <laughs> And, and drinking phase that I discovered during engineering. Uh, from what I remember, it, it was really theory heavy. So like there was a class that was just theory, but it wasn't, there wasn't a lot of application of it. It was more just the rote learning of different models and, and that kind of thing. And that at the time made no sense to me. Like I had nothing to anchor yeah. it on. I, I, I'd come from a, a field that, you know, up until that point, like I was going to be an engineer. Like, that mm. was it. So I was kind of, yeah, I was definitely a bit lost with regards to that. And I don't really, throughout the whole course, I don't really think, like I got bits and pieces, but I don't really think anything really clicked uh, like proper until I started placement in third year. So, okay. and then like everything sort of fell into place and I went, oh, like this is how all of that stuff is actually meant to work. And this is what it actually yeah. looks like. That could partially have been because I, I, I don't think I was the, the, the greatest student on, in the world, which was confirmed <laughs> by one of my lecturers well after I graduated and I ran into her at a conference. <laughs> I don't know as well, because I remember learning theory and it was like, a mind field, you know, it was, I under, I feel like I, I understood it to an extent, but 
I didn't know how to place that in context. And really, I don't know if I under, fully understood it until, like you said, until the last year and also beyond that. Mm. You know, really, you don't really understand. I didn't really understand my role as an OT until at least after my first year of practice. Mm. Um, Probably even longer I don't know. for me. Yeah, longer. Sometimes it just takes a while, doesn't it? Because you're still trying to... Well, because I think I'm coming in, I was coming into that environment with a completely different lens like i was coming in with a very practical logical structured lens that you know i'd been learning to develop i was very much into mechanics and team sports and like i didn't have a lot of soft skills uh up until that point uh i'd done things like cadets which again very structured very rigid um, and then I'm throwing in and, and there's no, the one thing I can sort of reflect back on now is there's no kind of adjustment or, and there may not be a way to do it, but there's no kind of adjustment or training period to change the lens before you start learning these models. It's just like throwing in the deep end and look, these models have all these different parts and this is how they interrelate. But I'm still looking at this through an engineering lens or like a very, you know, structured logical lens, not through a OT models that in general have to be looked at really fluidly because we have to apply them to people and everyone's different. So yeah, I think it took me a while to kind of I think it was mainly that that lens that I was looking at all of this through that took a while to sort of change. And then once that happened, which was probably around placement, I think after that I was yeah. I was good to go. Then everything kind of made sense. That's cool. Well, not everything, but more of more than it was before. <laughs> <laughs> so I heard you talk about the term soft skills. What do you see that as? What does that mean to you? To me, that's a lot of communication, mostly, and all the different uh, aspects of that. Also, things like emotional intelligence. Uh, I I think, especially like what I ended up going into mental health and those sort of soft skills are, in my experience and in my opinion, probably more important than any of the other skills that that we get uh, throughout the the degree. Like, you know, it's all well and good to be able to, you know, I know all the different components of this particular assessment, but one, when do you use that assessment? And two, how are you going to get that person who has no interest in talking to you to actually engage it? So, yeah, you know, the, the skill of being able to build rapport is something that is quite difficult to teach, but without it, you're not going to get very far. <laughs> so would you say for occupational therapists, that's a hard one of our solid skills then that we I'd actually... say, I'd say it's a core skill, but I'd still call it a soft skill because it's not a uh, like a real structured sort of theoretical type. Like you, you could probably break it down into theory, but still you still have to actually, it's still a, almost an art to put it into practice whether you know you know all the different components or, or not. So is art, is art a soft skill though? I would say so. I always get confused about those terms because I think art is complex. And mm. if if we go by the the um the definition that occupation is where occupational therapy is where science and art collide, 
is it then soft? Because you're building a framework, aren't you? You're building a framework of theory. But I'm not saying you're not using those skills in isolation. Yeah. No, I understand that, yeah. So, you know, you can have that side of it colliding with your hard skills of, you know, assessment and all that kind of stuff, and there's OT in the middle. Mm. Boom. So you said that you go into men- you went into mental health then. Why, why mental health? I had absolutely no interest in it uh, until I did a placement in mental health. And then after that, I had absolutely no interest in any other area. I just fell in love with it on placement. Was there a specific moment that you kind of experienced that made you, was there an interaction that you had or? Not necessarily. It was kind of just seeing, so I'd done other placements, like my, my, other placements were, one was in uh, like working with elderly people. It was a lot of equipment prescription and, you know, helping them with rails and wheelchairs and walkers and all that sort of stuff. The other one was on a, it was in a rural town uh, working partly in the surgical uh, surgical ward and then doing everything outpatient. So home mm. visits, everything from home visits to hand um, hand therapy. So, and, you know, I kind of, the, the equipment one, the first one, I, I was, it was a seven week placement. I was bored after three weeks. Like there was nothing new coming in. It was all the same. It was so repetitive. And the ward one, I'm like, we're churning people through so quickly. You don't even barely get to know their name. Like, and I just had, I just had no interest in it. One of my mates was in the year above me and he did a placement. Uh, and he was very similar to me in that he, again, didn't have much interest in mental health until he did this placement at this particular in this particular team, and then straight away just loved it. And he's again, he's been in mental health ever since as well. So mm. I actually requested after hearing his experience, I requested to go into that same team for my placement, and I was lucky enough to get it and had the same experience. But I think what yeah. really got me was. In those other placements, it was kind of this real narrow role for the OT. Like your role is equipment, that's it. Or your your role is to, on these days, you're going to look at hands. On these days, you're going to do home visits. On, on these days, you're going to do, you know, stroke rehab on a, on a surgical, yeah. on a medical ward. Um, whereas the mental health placement, like we got to look at everything, like whatever the person needed. And I was like, this is amazing. And every client was different. Every day was different. Every week was different working with the same clients. Like it was just so much variety. And I do get bored easily. (laughs) So the the variety definitely appealed to me. But I just think I felt like in this field, I I could use OT more. It wasn't just that really narrow sort of scope. So I think that really appealed to me more. Yeah. So how long were you in, um, in practice for mental health then? I was in there for nine and a half years before before. And moving. what made you stay for that long, do you think? I don't know. Just loved it. Uh, I, I did different roles within that. Uh, I was in different teams. I did different jobs, but I was always in mental health. I just, I guess, developed a passion for trying to, I think in hindsight, looking back, I, there wasn't. I didn't feel like there was a very clear, not definition, but a, a clear role set out for OT. And I guess part of me was I knew the value. I could see the value of OT in mental health, but I was 
kind of there to explore it more, if that makes sense. Yeah. I kind of wanted to nut it out a bit more and go, well, I I know just through experience what the value of OT or what OT could offer in this space. And can we get uh, the extent of that within the, you know, the, the health services limitations, obviously, which... Yeah, I'm sure the UK knows as well with the NHS. Like, that can be quite limiting at times with their different rules yeah. and, and stuff like that. So, how so did like, you how did you define your role then within the mental health setting that you were in? Depended on which role I was in. Early on, when I first graduated, I was just pretty much doing as I'm told, like most new grads do. My first job, I was on a in a team it was called a rehab team but it was slightly different to what you would normally associate a rehab team being in that we were part-time or like half uh, acute inpatient mental health and half we would run these these community groups for uh, the mental health clients in the district so you know there was groups for elderly there was groups for young people there was cooking group like a little life skills type stuff we would run yeah. but it was all community based it was about linking them in with you know services that already exist or upskilling them so that they could live more independently that kind of stuff it was an ot heavy team but we had a lot of other professions in it as well but overall the program was kind of very much based around independence and all those good buzzwords that I enjoyed at the time. <laughs> My, I, I was pretty much just going along. At that point in time, that team was kind of almost one of a kind. Yeah, in in a, well, in Queensland anyway. Uh, in yeah. my in my state, in that there wasn't any other districts that had a team like it, and it was kind of seen as pretty innovative the way it operated within uh, our state health service. I didn't know that at the time. I just started working there and, you know, got the job and didn't realize it was kind of a big deal. But, yeah, I, I just kind of went along because we had so many OTs in the team. It was a really supportive sort of environment, especially to start my career. So, yes. you know, I just went along with a lot of the, the things that the other OTs were doing. A lot of them were a lot more experienced. Well, I was a new grad, so everyone was more experienced than me, but... Um, there was a lot of experience in the team, a lot of OTs that have been, you know, doing it for 10, 15 years kind of thing in the team. And I look back now and I'm like, oh, some of the things were just so dumb. But yeah, you don't know any better really? at the time. Yeah. In what way? They just didn't serve a purpose. Like doing a functional assessment for baseline. What does that do? What, what does that mean? Exactly. What does that mean? Essentially, <laughs> we are, essentially what has happened is doctors had heard essentially almost like a buzzword they'd heard that ot's do functional assessments so would refer for functional assessments they didn't know what it meant it was mm. and it was it was an assessment called the daxa that was used a lot i don't actually know if you guys have it over there i think it might have been an australian thing it was the domestic Maybe. and community skills assessment and it would just go through a whole heap of basic adls pretty much and you know you would observe them and score it up and it was like it was really massive like to do a full one was like half a day at least oh. huge and then another probably day and a half to write the damn report so i realize in now with my slightly more advanced knowledge that a lot of that stuff that we're putting people through one 
they didn't have to do it. Like mm. the Daxa tested the ability to withdraw money from a bank using a bank slip. No one used a bank slip anymore. <laughs> and like so it was just it. stupid stuff. And I know and I've had this conversation with heaps of people since because I know there are some people that still use it and they're like, oh, you just pick and choose the modules that you want. And I'm like, yeah, okay. The person that developed it doesn't even use that assessment anymore. That's how outdated it is. Mm. So that's a fair indication that you probably shouldn't be using it yourself. Yeah. But, yeah, it was just uh, you would literally spend – days doing these assessments and but it wasn't for there was no outcome there was no follow through with it so it wasn't like okay because the assessments took so long and we were in an acute hospital by the time you finished the assessment the person was gone so it was like you discharge them with some recommendations but you haven't done any intervention no yeah exactly yeah. you haven't done anything just ticking boxes for the sake of ticking boxes I think we should step back a little bit, though, because what does function even mean? You know, what do you that's see that my, term? That's one of, I hate that word. Mm, me too. I, I it really bothers me, and I don't understand why. But So the reason I give for uh, why it annoys me is that function is a term from mathematics. And mm. a function itself, by definition, is, you know, uh, a series of things that you can put some data into and you're going to get the same data out the other end, like math. So it closes off. Yeah, exactly. People don't work like that. I can put no. the same data into any person, the same set of um, circumstances, the same set of contexts of whichever context we're looking at, and I'm going to get a different result every time because people mm. don't work like functions. Function uh, for things like muscle fiber, if I trigger this nerve, it's going to fire, that muscle's going to move. Yep, sure, because that's going to happen every single time. Like that, sure, you can call that a function. Yeah. Doing your ADLs, not a function. Getting a job, not a function. Because I can guarantee you that even though I might take the same route to work every day in the same car, wearing the same uniform, there is something different about that every single time that I do it, whether it's that, you know, I didn't sleep well that night and I'm a bit tired or I'm daydreaming or I'm taking notice of something that I wasn't taking notice of yesterday. Like there is some aspect of it that's going to be different. It's not a function. And I, I, think, I think getting confused with function distracts us or talking about function distracts us from occupation which encompasses all of those differences that function doesn't and it also makes me think about you know the definition of occupation as well because technically occupation can never be repeated it's always exactly. a one-time thing because of that reason like you're saying is about the, the context it's about the different dynamics that are upon that engagement you know and so therefore I always think about a client and I tell my students this all the time and I'm sure they get a bit bored about it, but clients that I worked with, with um, that live with dementia within the hospital, I would always say to the doctors, look, they might not be able to get themselves washed and dressed right now or make a cup of tea or, you know, doing any kitchen tasks. But I guarantee you, if I take them home, they'll be able to do it in their own environment. And I had a doctor was like, no, no, they won't. They won't. They're going to have to go into a, you know, a care home. And I was like, no, they're not. And so I got permission and I took this client home 
and that couldn't do anything in the hospital at all, couldn't, you know, take care of themselves, um, were really struggling in terms of processing um, a significant amount of delay. They took them home and they could make a full meal in the kitchen. And that's why I kind of think about what you're saying is, so what does function mean? Like, you know, function might mean in terms of how the legs are moving in terms of the muscles, but actually function to occupation is like a continuum, isn't like it? I, I can see how, say, a profession like physiotherapy might very much use function. But for OT, yes, yeah. we might. Well, I mean, we've got our own terms for it when we look at taxonomic breakdown. Like we've got our own, we don't need to use the word function. We've got, you know, tasks, actions, all that sort of stuff. We've got our own terminology, our own language for it. And mm-hmm. when OTs tend to talk about function, they use it interchangeably with occupation. And that shits me to tears because we've just lost our mm. our uniqueness in that single interaction because they are very, very different yeah. concepts. So if I just kind of, you know, rounded up what you're saying, you're saying the term function is delimiting to the profession opinion, yeah. um, because we, we're losing our unique concept of occupation and that's basically what we do and it'll be like you know you 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 own a ferrari but you call it a corolla even if you are actually (laughs) utilizing occupation and you know doing really amazing occupational based practice with a with a client and then you call it function i'm like why no wonder no one knows what we do we can't even use our own terminology and yeah that's a whole nother rant Mm. we'll go down that eventually but when you kind of, you were talking about when you first went into practice as a mental health um, OT, you were a new graduate and so you had, how many occupational therapists were working with you? Probably in our team, there was probably six. Six, okay. And so you kind of went in there and you were first taught what you needed to do by these occupational therapists. Would you say that you were in so many ways cultivated into that, into the profession by these particular people? Definitely, and especially as a new grad, you you one you don't know what you don't know. So, as far as I knew, like I graduated OT, I had a rough idea from my well, my mental health placement was what fourteen weeks. So I'd had you know, what's that three and a half months experience, and I mm. go into a team full of these OTs that I'm like looking up to because they've been doing it for ages and. This team seems amazing and everyone's really friendly and everyone gets along and like I had no reason to question it, but I I don't even think it was that. I think at the time that was probably the way things were done. They're probably, that probably was Mm. fairly close to, dare I say it, best practice at that point in time because it's only like Mm. after, years after that I've realized and sort of. God, this like I mean, I I knew there was there was still some kind of with regards specifically with regards to the assessment. I, I had there was something that just wasn't clicking for me, but like we did do a a lot yeah. of really amazing occupation based practice outside of those assessments, mm. and we were supported yeah. to you know try new things. And at this stage, so this was like this was two thousand and nine. Yeah, must have been 2000, start of 2009. Like, we were the first team in our district anyway, like, to get a we and start trying to look at how we could use a we and, you know, computer game engagement for 
clients on a mental health ward. Like I couldn't find anything about that. Yeah. But no one had done it. So we That's were encouraged cool. to try new things and it was a lot of engagement, a lot of occupation. And a lot of it was trying to create experiences or create access to occupations that normally most people would have access to at home, but you, they just don't in a, in a ward. So, you know, we would have movies yeah. and games and, you know, we still did the usual like arts and crafts and all that sort of stuff, but we would do walks down to the shops like because they had to be supervised because they were inpatient and that kind of stuff. Like, but we were trying to engage them in their normal occupations that they would have access to if they were at home. And so when you were talking about assessment earlier, you were saying we didn't need to do these assessments. So if we fast forward to today, do you think that sometimes we are over-assessing our clients? Hell yes, <laughs> definitely. I think, <laughs> well, I can't even remember you know, if they're listening and they were the person that told me this, send me a message and get up me. But I can't remember who told me, but I remember someone telling me that you should always know the why. So if you're doing an assessment, mm. why are you doing it? If there's no purpose, if you don't know the why, you shouldn't be doing it. And there's research around institutional trauma. Like there's research around the fact that some of these assessments can actually traumatize people. And then even, even minor stuff, like it creates uh, a bad interaction or a bad relationship for that person with the health service, which can be detrimental down the track. It might not have caused much damage right there and then, but the next time they need help, they may not seek it because they're like, well, they're just going to make me do all this stupid crap again. Like it can have flow on effects. So I think yeah. that was some of the best advice I ever got is always know the why. If you don't know the why, then you need to find out what the why is before you start subjecting, which is what we do. We're subjecting people to some of these assessments and they seem benign. But if you take the, the client's perspective and look at all of the interactions that they've had with not just you, but all of the different health professions during their admission or during their, you know, whatever it is, if it's outpatient or whatever, like you, they've probably been asked the same questions a thousand times. They've probably been subjected to similar assessments. Yeah. Like there's some of the assessments that we would do that would be similar to some of the things that psych would do, which would be similar to some of the questions that social work would do. They're not the same assessments, but there would be similar, some overlap that's frustrating. I, yeah. I can't even imagine how annoyed I would be if that was me. So I, th I think always being very well aware of why yeah. you're doing something can be really powerful. Something so simple can be really powerful mm -hmm. to getting a better outcome for the, the clients that you work with. Yeah, it makes me think about like how, how does that really impact that person and if they're, you know, the Rosen for an effect mm. theory, like are they trying to do better just because you're there and or how does that support their future uh, occupational performance and or by telling them that they're not doing something right, but actually they're probably doing it in their own way. So it always kind of makes me kind of consider about those assessments that you were just talking about, the historical assessments and also what are we doing today that is very similar fairly sure i just i think it was rob Pereira that told me that by the way so cheers rob oh, okay yeah he's amazing uh, the other issue i had with that particular assessment and some of the assessments we were using at that time is okay yes they're standardized but the question was never asked who were they standardized against 
So a lot of those questions are standardized against middle-aged mm. white <laughs> Americans, a lot of them. Some of them aren't standardized at all. But I'm yeah. like, if that's not the population you're working with, then the reliability isn't as high as it might show if you if you bring up their research. Like I said, like testing someone on their ability to use a bank slip when I, at that point in time, I hadn't used a bank slip in 10 years. Because we don't have, I think banks had actually gotten rid of them not long after that. Like they just didn't exist. I get a bit frustrated with the the, the standardized term, if I'm honest. Um, so when you said that, as soon as you could obviously see my face, I was like, oh, <laughs> because like you said, like you know, a lot of occupational therapists, um, we are white, middle class, able bodied people, and we enforce these opinions that we have onto different populations and how they engage in occupations every day. And we determine the meaning of that through those assessments. And actually, what does standardize mean? And standardize actually just means, I Googled it as you were just saying it on my other computer, is it calls something to conform to a standard. And so in that sense, are we being true to our philosophy by using standardized assessments? And the other flip side is, from my understanding, and this is what I was taught by Dr. Morris, who's in the UK, um, is that standardized just means that it's been used over 300 times i don't think we know generally i not i say the royal we ot's in general know enough about the assessments that we're delivering to even know like how that process was undertaken because i i remember i cannot remember what assessment it was but Mm. i remember at the time finding an assessment that was standardized but they standardized it with ot's and ot students it hadn't even been used with a, with a client, with a service user. Yeah. So this assessment's probably going to be pretty accurate if you did it on me. But the people we work with aren't OTs or OT students. So, yeah, I, I, that always got my mm. goat. Now, I, I'm Standardized assessments, I do believe, have a place. But I don't... I, I think, like everything, yes. I think there still needs to be a critical eye thrown over it. You can't just take it as gospel just because it's got that standardized label on it kind of thing. And it's also going back to those soft skills. I mean, I'm, I'm putting my little, you know, little bunnies up in the air because I don't know if there actually are soft skills and we can determine that in a different conversation at some point. But those soft skills are the most important thing of your of your practice, you know, like you said. And so I say that they're hard skills in so many ways, Um because it's about the communication. It's about your approach, how you interact. Like you said, your emotional intelligence. And therefore, the way that you present these assessments to the clients that we work with or the service users, I never use the term patient because that means that they're relying on you for something, is the, the most foundational way that you would give these assessments and so or provide these assessments or carry out these assessments. And it's not about the actual, particularly about the assessment that you're doing, it's about how you do it and how it's used. And I think lots of people forget about that sometimes. And they say, well, this is what the outcome was. They scored, you know, the Montreal Cognitive Assessment. I don't know if you ever heard yeah, of that. Yeah. Is it, you know, the, the cognitive, you know, the cognitive one where you have to count backwards and you have right. to remember. World one. backwards and you have to identify the animals. and Yeah. And so you score 20, I think it's 30, actually. 30 is the highest. 30, yeah. And I think 20 and below is where there might be some sort of defect. Yeah. Um, with cognition, there was ranges. I remember there being ranges. Yeah, yeah. So somebody did that on me, <laughs> and I scored nineteen. 
and I'm not even kidding. And so I'm like, okay, I scored 19, yet this is what I do. I'm an occupational therapist. I'm doing a, a PhD candidate and blah, 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 and all these kind of aspects of it. So tell me how well that assessment is, especially, yes, I'm quite happy to admit I, I live with um, dyspraxia, so it, but that wouldn't have been taken into account with the client that mm. you were working with. Yeah. And therefore, how is that then going to affect the support that they have when they leave and if they needed any support when, when leaving the hospital setting. The thing I, I think a lot of OTs don't know, and not just standardized assessments, any assessment at all, is like, so we're taught about, say, I'll use PEO as the example. So we're taught about the, the person, the environment, the occupation, how they all interact, how they interrelate. But then we do these assessments on people to find out information, more information around those sort of three different things and more information about yeah. how they interrelate. What people don't think about is that that assessment is an occupation, which also yes. means that you have to take into account all of the contextual factors around the assessment when you're looking at it. So you can't just go, it's standardized, I'm going to use it, it's going to give me information that I can put into my model over here, and that'll give me the answers. You're incorporating that into a system, yes. whether you... Using a, depending on what kind of assessment you use, it's going to affect that system as a whole, that system being the person and their their occupational performance. So if you start looking at any assessment that you do, whether it's standardized, non-standardized, whether you're just having a chat with someone like we are now or whether you're going through a quality of life inventory or some sort of checklist, doesn't matter. If you start looking at that assessment as an occupation itself, you're going to be able to, one, it's going to assist you in being able to throw that critical eye over because we're trained already to mm. break down occupations into different categories and different areas and how they interact with different things. But it's also going to show you how the impact of that particular assessment might have on the person, which is something we at the moment, or not at the moment, but a lot of people just ignore because we're not, we're looking at assessment as almost something outside of that person and their their yeah. their context, when it's not, we're introducing something into it, and it needs to and be looked. And it like makes that. me then think about the OT process, you know. So we go through, in, which is basically what I'm doing with you right now. If, you, if you've noticed, I'm getting noticed, a bit of yes. <laughs> getting a bit of your history. Um, then looking at you know where your baseline is to an extent. So what your graduation and you know and <laughs> what you learned from that. And then we just started to talk about assessments. But then actually, when you think about it, assessments and intervention are completely two separate components within the OT process. But then they when don't it makes always me think work about, out like that. Actually, aren't they the same thing? Mm, well, they should be, especially <laughs> if, especially if we are actually engaged in occupation-based practice because the occupation should be both engagement and the occupation and should intervention. be both is anything written about that yet or is that something we need to write about oh, there should be I, I, <laughs> I wonder sometimes whether I think differently to other people or other people don't read the things that I read like I wonder how because a lot of the people I talk to are like you think so differently I'm like I, I don't really I just read a lot but <laughs> I don't understand because we were always, that was the one, not the one thing, but that was some, a really key thing I remember from uni is you are training to be a lifelong learner. 
And that was, mm. I'm like, yeah, sweet. Like, that's what I want. Like, I want to be growing and learning for the rest of my life, whether, you know, formal or informal sort of learning. But that that's awesome. That's exactly what I want. That's what I want from a profession. And I, I just, I don't know whether some people just finish uni and they're like, yep, sweet, I'm done. I'm an OT. I got my ticket. That's it. And then they hear someone like me or you or someone else talk about different concepts or uh, one thing I tend to try and do a lot is reframe concepts that people are, are looking at like you know exactly what we're doing here but reframe it in a different way to make you think about it differently so we're, at the moment yeah. like we're reframing how people actually look at assessments within a clinical process and I, I don't I don't know I don't think I'm doing anything super special or weird I just don't know why not many other people seem to think about it like that I don't know well you're, you're interacting with it aren't you that's the difference is that you're seeking it I also kind of think about the I understand why the OT process is there you know the oh, yeah. occupational therapy is very difficult to learn which we've established from your understanding as, as well as mine and we we know that from the graduate transition and you know like I when I was a student I did a whole thing about it emergence of occupational therapy and trust student trans- transition it's still running which is great um and so I get that the OT process is there. It's about teaching them how to, the student or the graduate, how to question, question what's going on and mm. why it's going on. Yeah. Like you said, it's the why question. Mm. And then I believe it was our colleague that we were recently speaking to, actually, Brock, and she... Oh, Jesse. Jesse, yes, in Canada. And she was talking about the term that one of her colleagues told her about was I wonder questions. So it's the questions of curiosity and it's, are we missing that? Are we missing teaching that in so many ways? Um, And like you said, like you consistently question things Mm. and as occupational therapists, should we all be doing that? Should we all be consistently questioning ourselves rather than trying to conceptualize all the time? Yeah. I understand that we need to have a baseline of knowledge. And I get that. I completely believe in education. Mm. Otherwise I wouldn't be in it. But it's it's then that further that that further level of thinking, isn't it? Yeah, and I I think I think with the OT process stuff, because I I taught you know CPBF and and that sort of thing to my first year students this semester. But I think even in the the literature around that, it says that you know it's got its I think oh, I'm gonna get shot for this, but I think it's ten different stages action points. I think they call them. But it, it says that they don't always happen in isolation. Like some of them will happen at the same time as others, et cetera, et cetera. But I think almost like that point is just sort of blown by, like it's mentioned. But to me, that's really important. You know, you've got your entering and your gathering information, your assessment and your intervention planning and agreeing on a plan, et cetera. In my experience, that can happen in one conversation in half an hour. That's like half of the process. And it's it's really difficult to, unless you're going to break down that conversation sentence by sentence, to actually pull that apart and separate mm. that into those categories. But I, I don't yeah. think you need to. I think it actually works better if it's really fluid and really comfortable. And, you know, however, the depending on the communication style of the, the person you're working with. But I, I just think, because I do remember seeing in there like, oh, you know, and in highlighting this to, to my students, like, yes, there are all these different stages, but if you think about this as almost like possible individual stages, but some of these are going to work together. And in reality, quite a lot of them are probably going to work together. In some workplaces, you might go through almost the whole process in one sitting. 
in others, you know, where you work with people more long term, you might spend 10 minutes on this one and six months in the middle. Yeah. It's very, again, context dependent as with everything. But I, I just think that that small note that's been made about some of these areas of the process happen at the same time is often just glossed over and not given, I think, the the importance that it, it probably should. Yeah, like the intention, the attention. And I, but I don't know if there's another way because that sort of highlights to me like a almost a fault in the actual design of the, well, I guess you'd call it a model, the framework. Yeah. But I don't know if there's any other way you could actually teach that without missing any of, because all of those steps are really important steps. They just don't necessarily happen the way they're listed. Yeah. I don't know if there's any other way. I'm sure someone's looked into it. And obviously the research originally that went into that found that, you know, this was the way to, to, to I guess graphically show the process. Mm. But yeah, I, I don't. And again, because I don't know what the, the health environment was like when that first came out, like it, yeah. it may be different. I don't know. I wasn't there. I only know what it's like now and trying to implement and this goes with all these assessments and stuff as well like i only know what it's like now and how the difficulties and benefits of implementing these these different theories and models and assessments to current health practice yeah and also i think a lot of practitioners these days also talk about the time that they have you know it's the the lack of time to be able to do what we need to and want to do as actual OTs in terms of our own occupation. And it really, that's one of the biggest barriers, but I always kind of talk about how we can grasp time. And I think Diane Cox said that in her um, Elizabeth Casson lecture, she said about splitting time into two, one time for your client, of course, but also time to be able to advocate of what we do and talk about mm. what we do and use that language and cultivate other people I think I've spoken to you about that before about the that we don't always need to fit into other the other medical sciences culture we, we need to highlight our own culture and be you know humble about it but also forceful <laughs> in so many ways need to stop calling our Ferrari a Corolla exactly the more that we are the more that actually they will give us time yeah. When you can prove yourself through the means that you're using, the value of what we do, and that's going to completely change the expectation um, in so many ways. And I wonder whether, so there's a lot of theories that often we just sort of run with because that's what we're taught, but I wonder whether there needs to be some sort of process of actually, because I mean, updating them. I guess, as as the health yeah. system changes. I know it would come down to individuals actually doing that work, but yeah, I, to me... Or, or the awareness of it, the awareness yeah, even. Or like, yeah, even just having a look at, well, is this someone doing the research? Does this model still, is this model or is this framework or is this assessment still relevant to the current health system? If only there was someone who could do that, Michelle. <laughs> someday <laughs> and so it makes me kind of think about then if it's about our awareness isn't it you know you were just talking about so going back again you were talking about graduating and we were saying about how you were cultivated into that setting with these lovely occupational therapists who 
there's nothing like meeting your first occupational therapist that you learn so much from <laughs> and then you go off on your own like a butterfly, yep. right? Because I've met some incredible occupational therapists and then other occupational therapists that do things that I personally wouldn't do. And I'm not saying it's wrong, but it's just the way that you see, you, you know, you build your own professional philosophy. And that was like the same as me going from engineering to, to OT. Like I just, I have a different lens. I see things differently. Mm -hmm. Exactly. But also it's about, like you said, it's creating that lens and the way that you do it and ensuring that it builds in the whole purpose of what we do as professionals. Because if you think about it, if we are consistently being like, we are trapped by time, we are trapped by this and this is what we cannot do. But if we start thinking about what we can do and then teaching the new graduates that what we can do, how that then changes the culture of our profession is about grasping it at the, the pinpoint, you know, at, at the start of the, of the, of the race rather than towards the end and try and ask. Yeah. I, I recorded a podcast this morning. So what's the time now? It's 11 o'clock now. I recorded a podcast at 5am this morning with uh, a lady who has her own private practice and does pediatric uh, therapy services for kids but purely outdoors, mm. has all the evidence, has her own framework and everything around the benefits of you know, doing very similar activities but engaging the kids in outdoor activities, so whether it's in nature and yeah. hiking and camping and all that sort of stuff. But one of the things that we were talking about was because we were actually talking about starting a business and entrepreneurship um, and that kind of stuff, and one of the things that we were talking about was the a lot of the OTs that I'm meeting now that are really the ones that are I believe according to my lens really practicing core OT stuff are the entrepreneurs mm -hmm. and the private practitioners who are taking that skill set and letting the skill set shape what they do as opposed to taking their skill set into a healthcare setting and the healthcare setting putting the walls up and going, you can operate within this. And they're not yeah. really reaching that full scope of what OT can do. Whereas a lot of the people that I'm meeting that are, are the ones that are free of that, uh, I guess, limitation. And they're free to yeah. build whatever mm. service they want. And every single one of them is different. I haven't talked to an entrepreneur who's, uh, whose practice is exactly the same yet. Like they're all so different because they're all bringing in their own interests, bringing in their own hobbies, bringing in their own, uh, you know, therapeutic lenses, bringing in their own ideas, their own creativities. And it's amazing. It is if I if I do end up, I, I could honestly say if I do end up going back into practice of some sort, I would, I want to do that. Like I want to yeah. build something that, I believe is 110% OT because I believe in the benefit of occupational therapy that much that uh, it would be amazing. And the job satisfaction yeah, would be amazing because, you know. Like OTs as agents of change. I don't know who said that, but I use that term a lot. So I can't, I'm not saying it's mine. I believe it may have been Gail Whiteford. Oh, Gail Whiteford. That woman, she's amazing. <laughs> I remember... Oh, 
she's like my one of my OT heroes. I just remember sitting at a dinner table with her and Matthew Molyneux and just being in complete awe because I, it probably was her <laughs> that said that. And, you know, those memories just stick in your brain. You're just like, wow. Um, and she she's she is that eight, one of those agents of changes. You know, she she sees things outside the box and she sees those relationships and looks at all the deprivation that is in the world and builds frameworks around that and enables people and us to use our approach differently. I, the, the podcast that I did with her, whatever episode it was a while ago now, like I consider myself fairly savvy. I felt so dumb. As, like, just <laughs> no listening dumb. to her talk and I'm like, where did you even get these ideas? These are amazing. Like the oh. ideas that she just comes up with on the spot I'm like, you could just like completely rebuild this profession with the ideas that you came up with in the hour and a half that we've been talking. Like just amazing. I'm in love with her brain. Fantastic lady. So if anyone out there, if you haven't read Girl Whiteford's work, do it. You you'll be a fool not to. That's the only message I'm gonna say right now. So when you were just saying that you um believe in the benefit Mm -hmm. of OT, like what do you see the value of OT as? What is the value of OT to you? Not everybody else, but Brock Cook. It's interesting because I probably see it, again, like a lot of things, I probably see it slightly different to most people. I see the value of OT almost in a supportive role. Like Like, I guess the value of occupation is well documented, whether it's physical or mental health. We know that humans have this innate desire to be occupied, to be doing something, and there's adverse health effects when they're not with things like depression, anxieties. There's a lot of physical illnesses that come from not doing things. Like that's There's tons of documented evidence about that. What I see in a real sort of general sense for OT with regards to that is a lot of the interventions that we would do with someone are often really common sense and Mm -hmm. in my experience there's a lot of people that i've worked with where you know we've identified something that's lacking and they've gone i'll just do this i'm like all right sweet like they it's not me coming up with it i almost see ot as well i don't see ot as a clinical thing as as a medical model clinical thing that that I'll, i'll clarify that I see OT as almost the champions of occupation. So there's a lot of people out there that will understand that they need to be doing something and will be working towards uh, re-engaging after illness, injury, etc. off their own bat because that's how humans are hardwired. The people that we work with are the people that still have those innate needs, those biological needs, but may be lacking the opportunity, like a lot of Gales work around occupational justice. They may not have the opportunity due to you know, any myriad of reasons. They may lack the, the knowledge or skills to be able to modify an occupation. So I think we work with the people that are almost like, almost, I think of it like a bullseye kind of, like there's these people in the middle that can work it out themselves, like most of us do every day. Like, I need to brush my teeth. I've run out of toothpaste. Oh, my God, what do I do? I don't have a meltdown and call my OT. I work it out, and I know there's some in the in the cupboard where all of, all of our extra supplies are. Like, I have that capacity. Some people don't. 
Some people uh, might struggle a bit. They might not even have a cupboard with extra stuff in it. They might have uh, some sort of condition where they can't access it. Like this is a really basic, basic example, but I see them, us working with those people on that sort of next level out where there's some barrier. And I think, I think it's different too because I've left a clinical role where I had this, I left a clinical role two years ago and my view of OT's yeah. changed since I've left the clinical role. So I've still mm. got, in my head, I've still got this kind of explanation of how we do things clinically, which is, you know, working with those people that don't have the knowledge or capacity or ability to overcome those barriers themselves. But then I've got this whole other layer that I've sort of been thinking about and been working on since then, where I see the potential for OTs to go into you know, preventative spaces. Like we don't even have to work with people that are experiencing some kind of deficit. We don't, like we could work with people yeah. to prepare them for an upcoming transition, um, that kind of thing. Transition yeah. periods are a big interest area of mine at the moment. Mm. So, and where OTs, I guess, fit into that. So we can, we look at transition periods on terms of, you know, ones that we know are coming unpredictable ones uh, you know might be natural disaster it might be accident or injury yeah we don't know they're coming we don't want them we're not planning for them where there's other ones that we know are coming things like retirement things like going from high school to uni things like yeah adolescence is a, is a transition period yeah. for people and we know that those occupational disruptions during those transitions cause people a lot of angst and some people handle it better than others and some people have you know, more resilience than others and they're able to, to make those transitions better and faster and you know, I guess they're more well-equipped to do so. And ICOT's position in there is to help people navigate those transitions. So yes, there's an mm. occupational component to it, but there's also a resilience component. There's also a capacity for uh, sitting with uncomfortableness and change component um and it's yes it's all based around occupation but there's other things that we need to look at that have an impact on occupation yeah so you're saying that the value of ot is to not just engage in occupation but also to be aware of the dynamics that surround occupation too yeah and i think i think a lot of those things would you know if you're looking again if you're looking at the po it would come under like you know person the person we're looking at their personal attributes and trying to upskill that person because I don't think, I don't think we do that a lot with well populations. Is what I'm trying to get out, but can't find the words. Whereas I think there's yeah. a there's a real space for OT to go into that. Are you kidding? Everybody needs an OT. Apparently. No matter who you are, oh, everyone needs an OT in some sort of form. That annoys me. <laughs> I don't need an OT. I don't want an OT. Everyone needs an OT. Or they, I just believe, you know, we have so much, like the value of us is the well-being. I already have a job. Don't need an OT. <laughs> oh, gosh. But it is, it's about like, well, our value is to enable well-being, isn't it? Or to, to support well-being across the lifestyle. I think that's where, and I don't know whether it's because over so long, we've kind of got tied up with the medical model so much that we've got a real health focus now. But I, I yeah. think the well-being aspect of it, I, I 
do think that's where hopefully the future of the profession will move towards more of that well-being because I think yeah. that also inc- incorporates well populations and keeping them that way, yeah. which is something that there are, there's very few OTs that are you know doing any of that work at the moment. It's all it's all reactive. So you know people are they get injured, they get ill, they get sick, blah blah blah, and then we act. So reactive versus preventative. Yeah. Yes, that's how I kind of I feel like the value of OT is to if I was going to put it into a specific term, which is, is difficult to do because you end up just exploring it, um, is about the well-being, you know, the long-term well-being of somebody and those abilities to transfer those skills or the transfer of knowledge or the tra- across the lifespan. And like you said, it is the preventative versus the reactive um, because no one actually ends up staying in the same state. They always either decline or they get better or and or. And so... Transitions are occupations. Mm. I put my hands, uh, you know, that everything is an occupation regardless of what you're doing. And I think sometimes we don't always acknowledge that. And that is our role is to enable people to do what they need to do through those transitions, whether that's preventative or reactive to what's happened. And I think occupational therapy have a significant position, like, you know, and even being within this disaster relief process of we look at contingency plans for those disasters yeah and it's about using that you know and i completely believe that too so fast forward so we did your new graduate we've done your kind of mental health you're currently transitioning where are you at right now 11 years later uh where am i at lost (laughs) buried in stress and paperwork uh no i am working in uh at a university i'm a lecturer now teaching into the ot course here Congratulations. Thank you. What else am I doing? Doing a little bit of study, doing this podcast, just doing the general networking stuff that I've always done, which is always fun. So tell me a bit about, there's a lot what you're doing right now. So that, like, why, why, why did you transition to academia? It was something that I always, in the back of my head, I'm like, that's kind of where I wanted to end up eventually. Circumstances made it happen a lot quicker than I was ex- anticipating. I was getting a bit over a lot of there was a lot of politics in the job that I was in. I was getting a bit over it. Uh, I took some leave because I just needed a break, and the the job at the university came up while I was on break, and so I took it. And never went back. So cool. I, I was actually looking for another clinical job. Um, at the time and the university job came up and I kind of went well you know I've kind of always wanted to be there maybe it's a sign so yeah applied for it got it and now is now that was yeah two years ago two years ago this month no sorry it's June now two years ago in May so what do you see your your job as now like your role as an OT now what is your role now I think my role now or the way I see it is obviously you know, there's the obvious thing about shaping the next generation of OTs, but <laughs> I, I think how that's done is really important. I think, like, I've got a lot of clinical experience. I try to be very real. I'm not. I'm not here to sugarcoat everything. Like, people need to be aware of the the realities of working in health. That was one thing I think that was a big uh, shock. I think to me when I first got out was, you know, this isn't all 
you know, roses and snowflakes kind of thing. It's it's hard sometimes, and it take. I, I think one of the big things for me was it takes a toll because you know we work in a caring profession. We wouldn't have yeah. got into it if we you know didn't care about people, kind of thing, and. Doing that and not having, I guess, sufficient coping strategies for, and this is just me talking about my personal experience, I think it burns you out. It, it, it has the potential to really hurt you. So I think, or I, I guess, better preparing the next generation of OTs uh, for the realities <laughs> of healthcare and the realities of a changing healthcare system because it's, it's changed exponentially in the time that I was in it. So even by the time, say, I'm teaching first years this semester, by the time they graduate, it's going to be a different health system. We've got different yeah. national health policies that have rolled out in the last four or five years. It's a completely, mm. not completely, but there are large chunks of our health system and our disability services system that are completely different. Even when our mental health act, our state mental health act changed last year, there are massive changes, massive implications for what we can and how we can deliver services. So like in the four years it takes for our undergrads to graduate, the health system can be very different. So it's not only me preparing them, but me keeping on top of what's actually happening. And I think a good way of that is like, as you know, like networking and keeping contacts all over the place is something that I've always been interested in and yeah, fairly yeah, it's good fighting, at it, I guess. It? But I think that now in this particular role, I always just did it for fun. But I think in this particular role, it's it serves a like you said a vital purpose. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it, I could see how it would be very easy to be disconnected uh, in this sort yeah. of academic world. You get in your own little sort of bubble. You're teaching your classes. Your content's coming from textbooks and journal articles and all of that stuff, and you've got your experience and your examples and your stories that you can deliver and then four years later you're still doing the same thing because that's there's no in that process of teaching that class there's no connection with the outside world so unless you actually make it it doesn't happen and is this why you started podcasting um no 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 i think well (laughs) actually I didn't specifically do it for that. I think it has the benefit of helping that. Uh, I did it. Why did I do it? I did it because, like I said, I, I have this sort of wide network of, of people that I know and people that I've spoken to and you know, people I've done projects with and people that I've now met in person. And I've always, even through previous projects, so like the MH4AT group and that sort of stuff, I've always had this thing in my head that there is this some really amazing work that goes on all around the world that nobody ever hears about because unless people are writing it up and putting it in journal articles, it doesn't get distributed. No one hears about yeah. it. So the MH4OT group originally, this was started in like 2011 or something, originally was for that, for people to share resources and things that they were doing and ideas and concepts and you know that that really on the ground work that nobody else would ever hear of otherwise like it was a place where we could really connect and i think kind of it's kind of self-sufficient now it doesn't need me it's like my little baby's growing up yeah 
the mental health issues. Yeah. And I think I started this for the same purpose. I like having conversations. I'm quite chatty, as some people may have guessed. <laughs> and I, like I said, I know lots of people all around the place, and I'm forever meeting new people online. And you know, if so, if I read a decent journal article, I'll send them an email say, "This is awesome. Yes. Like, what else have you done? What else are you working on? Like, this is cool." Uh, and the podcast is, uh, in one aspect, it's a way for me to have these conversations because I would have these conversations anyway. Like me and you, how like, we've Skype, you know, for years now, just to yeah. have a chat and talk OT things. Like we've had these conversations before; they just weren't recorded. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And the podcast was, I wanted, I essentially wanted to do it because I wanted to learn how to do it because I like tech stuff because I'm a bit of a geek. Uh, and I wanted to have more of those conversations and this way I get to sort of roll all those things into one and share them with other people so that those conversations that I have, you know, that I get so much out of and I learn so much from, I can share it with people and, you know, they might get something out of it and if they get something out of it, that's even better. Like it, you know, it cost me a couple of hours of my time and someone you know, may have learned something or thought of something different or thought of a concept in a different way or questioned yeah. something that they'd always done or like, it could be anything that they get from it. But to me, that's, it's, it's all comes back to that trying to show people that or highlight some of the amazing work that's being done by amazing therapists out there that just doesn't normally get seen. Mm, that's cool. So, you, you're very obviously a selfless person because you talk about what it gives everybody else. But oh, what does no, it give I you? love myself. <laughs> what does it give you? What's, what does it what's give it? Me? The podcast? Mm-hmm. So what's the value of it for you? It's hard to predict values. I understand that. But. Yeah, it's fun. I enjoy mm-hmm. it. So it gives me that for sure. And I think professionally, like I... Like I've got to speak to, you know, some amazing people and learn about, I've learned about practice areas I didn't know existed. Um, mm. Like I learned about hypotherapy and I learned about, you know, what the OTs do in women's health. And I've learned about, you know, processes for research and PhDs and all that sort of, like all stuff that I didn't know before. I've, you know, yeah. sp- spoken to OTs in oh, a ton of different countries, like learning more about, like I'm just forever learning, I guess. Um, yeah, so that's, that's what you always want to do, right? Yeah, and that's that's exactly, you know, that's why I got excited about signing up in the, uh, for this this profession in the first place is like I get to learn forever. It's amazing. Yeah. And there's always something cool. to learn. Uh, <laughs> and even like I, I originally thought, and I think through a lot of the things that I would read, I was always looking for almost validation or confirmation of things I already knew, which I originally thought like I'll probably get some of that through the podcast as well. Yeah. But it hasn't so much in that it's been really like a lot of new stuff that I've learned and a lot of new ways of seeing things and a lot of uh like some things that I've, you know, written off and I've been challenged to look at them in other ways. Thank you, Ellen. Mm. It's, it's been, I feel like I've grown a lot from having these conversations and, 
And, and like the feedback, I mean, I'm not going to lie, like the feedback that I get, it's obviously, you know, gives you the warm and fuzzies and that kind of stuff, especially if, you know, people uh, really resonate with some of the conversations you have or some of the information you put out there because, yeah, I, I, I can understand for some people how it might seem like scary as shit, you know, putting yourself out there and uh, it's not... It's not that I'm overly confident because I'm really not. It's just not really been. And maybe because I've done a fair bit of public speaking before. I don't know. Or maybe yeah, because maybe. it's not live and I can edit it and, you know, <laughs> obviously cut all the swear words out of this one kind of thing. But, uh, like, I, I don't know what it is, but I, I don't. Like, I don't get nervous. I don't. It, it doesn't worry me. It's almost like I. I. I I spend each episode and I do reflect on each episode and I listen to each episode multiple times through the editing process and even once it's released, I'm really looking for ways to improve myself. And one one of the things that I do remember thinking early on was now that I'm not in a clinical role, like I can keep on top of all of that other stuff, but one of the things I can't is my interviewing because I just mm. don't get the opportunity to do it. So I remember thinking early on, like after like the first episode or something, that you know this would be a really good way to keep my interviewing skills, you know, current and fresh. And yeah, definitely. So, so far it that and research. That and Michelle can keep pressuring me to do research. <laughs> well, you're doing it, aren't you? You're, you're looking at how the roles uh across the country and across the world essentially you're, you're doing it already you're looking at it you're analyzing it you're reconstructing it you're bringing about new ideas Informing, you're basically doing yeah. it bro. it's just writing it <laughs> see i just don't like writing if you could like podcast a phd i'd be all over that it makes me um from what you were just saying i i had this conversation with one of my very brilliant students more recently about the vulnerability of occupational therapists and the if we're not as vulnerable, then are we actually really learning if we feel that we know everything? And one of the common, common things that I say to my students, and they will nod right now if they were listening, is be comfortable with being uncomfortable in your practice because then if you're not, you're not really listening. And if you think that you're right, you're probably wrong. <laughs> and I always, I kind of, I embed that within them from like, so, and it's even from you that's, you know, 11 years plus practitioner that is saying to me that this is what I'm hearing is I am forever learning and I am happy to be wrong in what I think just so that I can work with the people that I need to work with. And that's, that's another it- thing too is I, I, don't, I don't think anyone's wrong. I think wrong is the wrong way to... F- yeah ironic yeah wrong is the wrong way to frame it and a a lot of people do like oh i've had so many people like oh you know what you said is wrong or i thought this i must be wrong and it's not that it's it's almost like where everyone's an individual and we've evolved our understanding of different concepts and our our lenses through very different experiences like there's a lot of things that me and you see similar there's equally as uh, as many things that we would see differently 
we're yeah. both occupational therapists. We've come up through very different experiences. We've had interactions with very different occupational therapists that have, you know, rubbed off on us. Mm. But we can still, like, I, I don't think that makes either of us wrong. We just are coming no. from different places. Um, even if we're yeah, talking it, about I, our specific topics. Maybe the topic. term wrong is probably the, the wrong language to use, but could be question, you know, if you if you think you're, everything is right, you would need to question yourself, you oh, know, yeah. or be curious. I think if you lose that curiosity, then there's something something that you need to investigate. Like if there's yeah. nothing making you curious, and that was, I, I was speaking to, who was I speaking to? Oh, I was, actually it was in the podcast this morning. I, I was talking about, because I'd been asked by multiple <laughs> guests on the podcast, like, I think you might have asked me as well, like, do I have any questions? Can I send the questions through beforehand? I'm like, I don't, I don't prepare any questions. I, I, I don't do any of that because I bring people on here that I find genuinely interesting and I am genuinely curious. So all of the questions that I ask people are off the top of my head, like, because I'm actually engaged and I'm genuinely curious about what you're teaching or what you because you're teaching me whatever it is we're talking about you're teaching me and i'm learning and i'm trying to get as much information out of you as i can um usually before either i go to bed or before you go to bed because there's always a time <laughs> difference so yeah it's I, I think a good gauge of that is have you got that curiosity mm. like, are you if if you don't have the curiosity you're either not engaged in the, the topic or the, the activity, or you think you already know it all, in which case mm. there's, there are two things that you can look at and change to get that curiosity back. Yeah, and we need that. We need yeah. to be curious because we are humans and humans are curious, right? I hope so, so I think one of my final kind of questions that have just kind of been developing over this however long conversation <laughs> so we've kind of gone from you know studying like why you got into occupational therapy it was because of a puppet to <laughs> um you know how you felt in, in university how you went through that process of um uh learning theory and how you start to find your own identity and start to really understand what it was in your third um placement and then going into practice you know that transition of that cultivation from other occupational therapists and also then finding your voice and realizing that and reflecting using that professional development to reflect upon that and we reshape your own identity and then again that transition into coming into education of you're burnt out from the services you know there's only so much you you can really do and now it's about changing that vision for um, students to be able to be prepared because of that that experience that you that you had. Um, tell me if I'm wrong in any of this. No, you're right. So one of my questions is for you now is what is your vision for the future of occupational therapy? Poor. It's a big one because you're podcasting. You looked at every. You know, you're looking at different aspects. You're educating people from around the world. What's what's your vision now? Or your I think it's like a continuum, isn't it? In so many ways, a continuum of vision. <laughs> yeah. Vision. That's a really hard one because I think I'm the type of person that kind of looks at, mul like, I'll, I'll imagine multiple different scenarios for any sort of uh, conundrum. I, I think 
there's a couple of things I would love to see the profession do. I do think that well-being is going to be the next big push uh, in therapeutic practice because I think I can see a change where OTs are starting to realize that we don't really fit the medical model. We don't fit the medical model, yeah. did you say? I mean, we don't at all. <laughs> That's what I mean, but I, I know, but like OTs are finally starting to see that. And they're start, I, I'm seeing a lot more OTs now starting to branch out outside of that model. And I can see that being the space that OT starts to grow in more. So at the moment, majority of OT positions, I think you'll agree, are within some sort of medical model health service. I can see that changing in the next 20 years. Um, and I'm not saying like there are definitely OTs that uh, are necessary and needed within those services. Um and I think they do amazing work. I think the limitations that some services put on those OTs at times is unfair on those OTs and unfair on the profession. Um, but I can see a lot more of the a lot more therapists moving outside of any sort of medical model limitations in the future. The other idea that really, really fascinated me was one that came up in the uh, the podcast with Gail. Uh, and she believed that what she would love to see was a profession that was separated differently into what we do. So she used the example of um, law, where you're a lawyer, but you work in family law, you work in um, you know criminal law, where law is always in the name. Whereas, mm. you know, you're an occupational therapist at the moment, you're an occupational therapist, you work in acute mental health. Like, that's got nothing to do with occupation. You work in pediatrics. Again, nothing to do with occupation. So she, her, her idea that she pitched was uh, that occupational therapists work under occupational specialties, similar to law. Mm. So you would be yeah. an occupational therapist that would work in occupational deprivation. That would be your specialty. And you would work with all age groups. Doesn't matter who, but you that was what you would be working. You might work in occupational transitions, you might work in occupational justice. So they're the specialists. So you would be a specialist in, you know, occupational transitions or occupational deprivation. Yeah, that would be amazing. That's I know, it just makes so much sense when you say it out loud. (laughs) But like and her idea was that that will one you you can end up with a lot higher quality therapists. But you're also going to eliminate uh, a lot of the uh, a lot of the issues we have at the moment with promoting ourselves, because, yeah. like she says, similar to law, like occupation, what's core to our profession would be in the name of the practice area that we're in. Yeah. So that that's an, that's something I've been thinking about a lot since um, since speaking with her, and I'm like, I, and I'm sure that's one of the ideas that she just plucked out of off her, off the top of her head while we were that talking. lady by gosh yeah that definitely that's definitely stuck with me that that mm. idea so i would love to see that happen um in conjunction with the wellness uh the well-being sorry yeah i think I wonder that. how we're gonna do that now i'm like how can we do that hmm. <laughs> so rather than having specialist sections in different in that in i think we just have to start I honestly think it's like any movement. It would just have to start. 
Yeah. So like part of me, part of me is then thinking like, how can I position? Because like, like I said before, my interest is at the moment very much in occupational transitions. How could Mm. I position myself as a specialist in occupational transitions? Like I don't need to be a specialist in everything, but how could I position myself in a specialist for that? And I think, you know, if other people did it, like it's like any movement, it starts small and you get groundswell. Mm. Interesting. It wouldn't. It definitely wouldn't be easy. I think mine's probably transitions as well, reactive transitions. Yeah. Or preventative transitions or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Whereas you know, someone like Gail might be would might be someone like Gail would be sort of occupational justice. Mm. You know, and then there'd be others that you know have a real passion for occupational deprivation and that kind of thing. Mm. So yeah, that's that's where I would love to see the profession move into something more authentic i feel that's a more authentic ot that sort of Mm. that we need to step away from the medical framework that we're pushed into and i mean what this is what blows my mind is we're actually taught on a social model that we work in a medical model um we're pushing a square block into a round hole i've had a few ot's that have said to me we are you know we are medical you know we and i'm like no you're not and so they're like, <laughs> I end up having a huge debate with people that be like, we are in the medical model. We are medical. And I'm like, no, you're not. And here's why. <laughs> but I think even, even right back, going full loop back to the start, that's where we've got this function from. We've just yeah. adopted it. The term patient. The pa- patient like people use the term yeah. patient. We've just adopted all these different things into our lexicon. And now over years, people aren't aware that that's not ours like give it back we don't want it you know it's crazy so and if you've got any last parting words of wisdom i don't know if i had any to start with did i um there's a bit of a story there mate (laughs) no i think i i think ot's students ot's just need to find that you're gonna have to find your own way through the profession the profession isn't a destination i don't think i think the profession Mm. is an evolution and i think Mm. the the benefit that modern sort of our generation and onwards have had is it's a really connected evolution now that we've got (laughs) you know the internet and that kind of thing so you know connect the more people you can connect with, the more experiences and ideas and thoughts and resources you can pass through your own brain and shape your own lens and, and, and get a much more, uh, a much deeper and authentic view of occupation and occupational therapy. So uh, I see too many students that are still trying to, it's scary. They're still living in little silos and it's scary to reach out and it's scary to put yourself out there, but the benefits far outweigh the risks. So that's probably, that's probably the one piece of advice I would give to anyone really therapist or or student. I think what I've learned from today is um, remain curious. Yeah, that's a good one. Why didn't I think of that? Because I'm the one asking the questions. This is hard. This is so much harder on the other side. I know. Right? It's so weird. I didn't think it would be that. Like, money. I didn't think it would be that. I feel bad for the people that I interview now. I'm like, is this what it feels like? No, no, mate. It's great. It's uh, 
it's insightful. It brings about so many like, new ideas having that, you know, that interaction, that yeah. interconnectedness of the seeing people have the similar ideas. And so I've learned a lot from it. Even from my research, actually, I've been writing some, a few of your... <laughs> I've seen you taking notes. Like, oh, on I'm going to need to do this. Yeah. <laughs> Hopefully some of it's useful. Thank you so much for your time. It's been fruitful. We've gone through basically the whole of your history of your own occupation. Know more about me now than I know about myself. So, I know, right? No more basket weaving. It's all about the puppets. It's all about (laughs) soft puppets. Good old monkey broccoli. Broccoli. (laughs) But no, thanks, dude. It's been it's been really fun and definitely a very entertaining experience being on the the other. well, still the same microphone, but the other side of the conversation, I guess. Yeah. Well, thank you for letting me hijack. I, it's kind of great. I love it. <laughs> Most welcome. Thank you very much. We've discussed everything from Brock finding occupation. It's hard. This is not an easy task. <laughs> it's because it's the first time I've done it. Okay. Oh my God, I'm sweating. <laughs> Thank you.